This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. It is uh, with holy trembling that I uh, continue this series on spiritual gifts. Even the word, the phrase spiritual gifts has so much packaged into it. Right before we started this, we were talking about revival and how much is packaged into that word. And I'm going to say unfortunately packaged into that word because it is a beautiful word. It's a beautiful concept throughout history, but there are oftentimes counterfeits of it. And you have to recognize that it's a compliment to whatever topic the enemy is going to come up with a counterfeit version of it. And so if there's a counterfeit version of spiritual gifts, how important do you think the real thing is? So as we go through this, I, I desire to introduce us to what the Bible says on this topic. I am not trying to stir emotion in here at all. In fact, I feel more comfortable when there isn't a lot of emotion because then I feel like, hey, maybe we're more stable in handling these matters. And I oftentimes, and I'm just going to admit this up front, because of this territory, which feels somewhat radioactive to me, I have spent seasons of my life backing into my belief system like we talked about last week, where it's just like maybe the absence of this would be safer for the body of Christ. I did that with the Holy Spirit, where maybe not talking about the Holy Spirit, not teaching on the Holy Spirit would be healthier for the body of Christ, like level us out a little, make us sane again. But that actually isn't the solution, is to remove a truth that is precious to God. It is to remove the barnacles and what the enemy has attempted to do because he has taken hostage something. That's God's truth. And as a result, we need to pry away the barnacles and the manacles that are on these truths and to see them set free, if you will, to function in our life and in our midst as God intended. This is not a small idea in the New Testament. It's a small idea in the global church for the most part, unless you're in either a Pentecostal or charismatic environment, you really don't address these issues, except for maybe with a personality test to sort of see what sort of gifting you have for the body of Christ. Oh, your helps, you go to the kitchen. You know, we have our, our different ideas about it in the conservative side to keep it level-headed. And I understand all of those things. I really do, and I probably would err if I was erring on the side of conservatism instead of wild-eyed fanaticism. I like my truth orderly. I like it uh, dusted off and you know on the bookshelf, just right where it's supposed to be, next to the books that are the same, you know, equal uh, density or width, you know, on their spine. And I like colors to be matched up. And God doesn't have the same sensitivities or the same organization system that Eric Ludi has. And there are certain things in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. I mean, if we're going to talk about Old Testament funny things, that's a whole, you know, we could have a lot of fun with that too. But in the New Testament, right when you think God got his act together and, you know, got all, you know, he got into a suit and tie and got, you know, organized, you know, and started really doing things in a way that we can understand as Gentiles. You start reading through the New Testament, you're going to recognize there's a lot of odd stuff in there. 
And the New Testament church, for all we can see, is they seem to just go along with it. They acted like this was normal. Well, maybe it was normal back then, but hey, people, this isn't normal now. I have a hunch it was just as surprising back then as it is now. It was possibly, in fact, I don't think the word possibly is the right word. It was just as challenging to address back then as it is now. And you could say, how do you know that, Eric? First Corinthians. That's how I know. Because it's a correction book because the church at Corinth went wild-eyed on these very things that we are bringing up. Which can cause us to just say, let's put this issue on lockdown, lest we spread it like an infection. And so we've been on permanent lockdown for almost 2,000 years, it seems like, in a certain dimension of the church, lest we spread what happened in Corinth. And I would say, I do not believe, as a believer of Jesus Christ and of his word, that that is the right way to handle anything in his word is to ignore it, to overlook it, to downplay it. Sometimes we can hyperbolize it and make too much of a scripture, to make too much of a concept, and that definitely has happened with this issue. But there's also the possibility to denigrate and to diminish to the point where you make too little of a topic. And I believe that many of us in here are vulnerable to that side of the ledger more than the other side, okay? If you were vulnerable to the other side, usually... You don't hang out at Ellerslie as much, if that, that makes sense. In other words, Ellerslie is a good, sane, safe environment where we don't feel we're going to go you know, one way or the other too strongly. However, I just want to go where the Spirit of God is leading. I want to be where He is. Even if all of you thought I was a kook, I'm willing to go there if that's where God is. Earnestly desire... Part two. So last week I brought up the idea of kinesiology, which is the study of bodily movement. It's a two-year degree, and yet most of us have never taken two years of our life to learn the body movements within the, the spiritual body of Christ. And yet what would happen if we actually became experts on how this is supposed to work? And so spiritual kinesiology, here is my definition. Remember, I, I made up this topic. It's, it's actually in the Bible. It's just not called this, right? The study of the supernatural mechanics of the body of Christ. Paul was an expert on this. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. Earnestly desire the best gifts. Now, the location of this particular scripture is very, very important. And it matches with what we said last week. Last week I said this chief function of the body is not in these small lowercase g giftings. It's in a capital G gifting called love. In other words, what we are equipped to do in the body is first and foremost love. Paul is using the same argument right here. We are one verse away from something known as 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And right after walking through all these very difficult, hairy issues, he comes to a conclusion and says, earnestly desire the best gifts. And then he is going to make a statement, I show you a more excellent way. But what I want to do with this, just so you can appreciate it as we go in, because earnestly desire the best gifts, and you're thinking, okay, what is the best gift in the body of Christ? You can go through your laundry list, which I will give you today. 
I will give you the laundry list. It's like I call it Home Depot shopping list where we can go and walk through Home Depot and all the amazing tools that God has given the saints of God to utilize to strengthen the body of Christ. Wow, look at these tools. And you can say, which one? You can, you can have a shopping spree and get any one of them. Paul's gonna say, hey, before you go on that shopping spree, what you need to remember is there is one gift that is superior to all of these. And don't go home without it. And many of us, ironically, do. We, don't, we, we look at these other small g gifts and we elevate their value over the chief function of the church of Jesus Christ, which ironically is love. That is the grace gift that we have been imparted. So if I was to unpack this statement in the Greek, earnestly desire the best, and now I, I crossed out best not because it's a bad translation. However, what that word means is most advantageous, most excellent, and most useful. The most useful gift, the most advantageous gift, earnestly desire that. And so instead of gifts, which is very misleading to a modern Christian, the word is charisma, which does translate as gift, it can, but it comes from the word grace, and I'm going to unpack that word charisma today, but it's basically an impartation of grace, a gift of grace. So there is one gift of grace that is most advantageous to you, and then Paul is going to unpack it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So I want to start with that. Now I'm calling this message earnestly desire. Earnestly desire the best gifts. Don't you think that's an ironic twist to this topic, considering many of us don't spend a lot of time desiring gifts of grace? It's like, that's just awkward. That's weird. That gets us into the weeds of things. That, that makes us you know, uncomfortable. It gives us the eebie-jeebies. Earnestly desire. That is a very strong statement. It's not just desire. It's earnestly desire the best gifts. And so what I want for us to allow to be cultivated in our midst is a willingness to have a change of reference or a change of mind towards what God desires to give you. If God desires to give you something, should you stiff arm him and say, I don't really want that? It's the same thing that I oftentimes say in here. As a leader, do I really want to go down the street and lead someone to Christ? Yes, but now we have to disciple that person. Now that person has needs, and now I've just brought these needs into my world. And what God says is he overrides that and says, earnestly desire that soul. Earnestly desire that. But God, if we go in that direction, it could create this effect, this effect, this effect. You could go on and on. The more you get into Christianity, the more you realize it's one gigantic inconvenience to your natural man. There is nothing in Christianity that is patting you on the back and making you comfortable. It says, come and die. It's like, well, God, uh, maybe we should rethink this. Could I have a version of Christianity that allows me to live whatever life I want to live? And then I, you know, I, I say, but I love you, and I get to you know, have all the benefits from you the whole time. And God says, if you desire to be my disciple, deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. I, Eric Ludi, desire to be the disciple of Jesus Christ, which means I want to be conformed into his image. I want to follow him, but to do that, I need to give up my way, my rights. I need to pick up a cross. A cross, by the way, is an execution device, and it leads to the death of a man. And so God is saying, pick up that which leads to the death of Eric Ludi and follow me. 
Ugh. And this is one of those things where he begins to renew my mind and change my thinking. He says, Eric, the way I designed you is so that I could impart to you and utilize this thing known as Eric to reveal my glory in a unique way. And if all of my saints do that, we have something happening here. But I want to have you and I want to give you something so that you can be fully what I intended you to be. My God, I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about and I'm not exactly sure that I want whatever that is because it could make me one of those weird Christians. And I would say that's a risk. When you're denying yourself, you have to be willing to be one of those weird Christians. Now, I'm right there with you. I'm not a fan of most of what has taken place under this banner. And some of the things that I've witnessed up close, I would say are not just being a quote-unquote weird Christian, it's being a fake Christian. And I have no interest in going down that road. So I'm not promoting fake flesh Christianity, where you make up a tongue and then try and pass that off as if the Spirit of God is working through. You make up a prophecy to control people. I have seen this up close, where people will have these words of knowledge, but they are using them to manipulate I am not at all interested in fostering in the body of Christ anything that does not flow from the genuine stream of God's working at all. But if it does, and if I genuinely believe that God has a desire to work within his body, I have to allow for that in my leadership. And I have to allow for that in my life to say, yes, Lord, Yes, Lord, but show me how to help steer this. What is my role in this to protect us from the false and the fleshly and the natural? And what's interesting is the answer to that question is the same thing that is true in my own life. Do you know that I, in my own life, can have a movement of grace, but I can manipulate with my own flesh and my own natural man? So can we as a whole. This is the great tension of why God wants to use us. Why doesn't he just do this himself and we're bystanders? Instead, he chooses to inhabit our bodies, which have a whole bunch of weaknesses and frailties and potential foibles associated with them. But it's his choice, and we agree with his choice. The capital T truth is Jesus is the capital G gift. So there are a lot of truths in the scripture. There are. And so we could go through Scripture and get out a lot of truths, and they would all be truth. However, there is a capital T truth. And if you were to look at the whole Bible, and imagine if I asked Nathan Johnson, what is the capital T truth in the Bible? I mean, you could all, it's just, he's so predictable. Predictable as the sun to rise. I even know what his answer would be. And here, I'm going to see if I can quote him, see if I'm accurate. Jesus. Was I right? Look at that. I nailed that one. And that's exactly right. The capital T truth is Jesus. That does not mean all the other lowercase t truths, which are capital T in the sense that they're God truths, aren't important. It's just that they're subservient to a higher truth. And what we have a tendency to do is to capitalize in the wrong way a, a lowercase truth. It's still truth, but we give it too much emphasis and as a result distort the machinery that God has established. Jesus is the capital G gift. So when we're talking about spiritual gifts, if you're going to talk about something that has been given to you that is greater than anything that you should earnestly desire, I'm giving you a hint right off the bat. That gift 
is first and foremost Jesus Christ. And that is what, if you're going to earnestly desire something, start there, and we'll work our way down the list. Let's get our lowercase g knowledge out on the table. So, gifts. I'm going to go through a, just sort of a crash course in what the New Testament teaches us about what I'm going to call lowercase g. In other words, if our capital G is Jesus, and there is more to that, because I could say another capital G gift is the Holy Spirit. I could add more to that. And I could say another capital G gift is love that has been shed abroad in our hearts. Those are what I could call the triumvirate of capital G gifts, that through Jesus we have been given the Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by faith. This is how it works, the function. And if you're going to go after something, that is a chief right there. So underneath that banner, all throughout the New Testament, Paul is going to wax eloquent about this lowercase g, this spiritual gifts, that, and he's going to give us very specific instruction on it, which gets confused, which is what we talked about last week with doing the twist. His words get twisted. And many of us have grown up in environments where it was twisted to the point where you are uncomfortable right now with me talking about it. It's like lest it gets twisted yet afresh here at Ellerslie. Of course, my desire is the same as yours and that is that it does not get twisted here at Ellerslie. I desire to walk this narrow way, not getting too, too, too much to the right or too much to the left, but being steered by my shepherd, patting me on the backside as a sheep walking this path, that he steers us down the narrow way, the middle ground towards the truth that sets us free. So let me go through this lowercase g gifts. God has given us very specific grace to be able to move supernaturally as a body and function as a fully matured picture of Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible teaches. Now I'm going to go into the scriptures for this too. Right now I'm just giving you an overall summary. I'm going to read this first one again. God has given us very specific grace to be able to move supernaturally as a body and function as a fully matured picture of Jesus Christ. Number two, like physical exercise, there seems to be a proper form to the movement, exercise, and function of the body of Christ. If any of you are athletes, and if any of you have ever worked out or trained in an athletic form, whether it was some kind of weightlifting, which would be a great illustration of this, or any type of athletic uh, venture, there are certain things that you do that actually can be very dangerous for the human body. Like Abby is a gymnast. And if she does certain movements incorrectly, it can actually break her neck. <laughs> that was a very pleasant thought as a father, I know. However, what she is trained from the very beginning is perfect movement. And if she learns perfect movement, and before she increases in her skill challenge, she masters that perfect movement, it becomes a foundation. And she can add in more difficult movements. The same is true with weightlifting. If you're a weightlifter, and you do not lift lightweights properly, when you're lifting lightweights properly, you can still strain your neck, strain your, uh, you know, your shoulder, whatever. It could still happen. But if you go straight to a heavy weight with bad form, it can really wrench your body. And you could be out for you know, weeks, if not months. A, a muscular strain happens because of incorrect form. And the same is true with the body of Christ. Just imagine, we're talking kinesiology here. That there is a proper way for us to work, and if we do not work, we can strain ourselves, we can injure ourselves. 
which is more of what we have experienced as the body of Christ than health. Most of us have become experts in, yeah, don't do that. Yeah, never do that. Uh -uh, Yeah, never pick up that weight either. Well, it doesn't mean the weight is incorrect. It's how you picked it up. And so what we want to do is become experts in the most basic functions so that we can begin to add more weight. And I feel like that's one of the challenges we have had as the church is we want to progress faster than we're ready for. And then we have an injury which causes us to throw that whole movement out altogether. Number three, and just like physical exercise, if the form of the movement is off, then injury, even serious injury, can occur. Number four, for this movement to really work as God intended, it appears that not just a few members of the body need to be functioning correctly, but that each member of the body has been given a special grace and a special part to play and should be playing it. Now, when you grow up in a church system, where 2% of the body of Christ lead the body of Christ and do all the movement, and the rest, the 98%, their movement is to attend and to give money, that actually doesn't foster a great segue or introduction to what we're talking about here. Most of us learn praying by witnessing praying. And you'll notice that the way we pray has a tendency to sound like the people that prayed around us when we were growing up. It's a weird phenomenon. The same thing is true about church. We have a tendency to behave in church in agreement with the way that people around us behaved growing up. And so if you did grow up in a more charismatic or Pentecostal uh, expression, you are ready to participate a lot more readily than if you grew up in a sit in the pew and stare back at a pastor preaching sort of church. And nothing is wrong with that except for the fact that we can get settled into our ways, which makes it hard for someone like Eric, who's like, I don't want our ways. I want health in the body of Christ. And everyone stares back and be like, well, what does he mean by that? And then you write it down in your notes. You know, it's like 98% should be doing something. But that doesn't mean we're doing something. It just is a nice theory still. How do you get a car out of park? You can theorize about the fact that this car should be going down the road at 65 miles an hour. And yet that doesn't mean that it is. And what is the change that needs to take place to get that operational vehicle out of park, into first, around the corner, out to the interstate, and then, boom, get this thing really going? Number five, the grace for this body movement is referred to in Scripture as pneumaticos charisma. That really helps, doesn't it? It's like, oh, now that I know that, now I know exactly what to do. What do we know about pneumaticos charisma? Well, let's, let's unpack that a little. So pneuma is where we get spirit. So when you see pneumaticos, you could only guess that that has something to do with it. Charis is the basis of charisma, and that's our word for grace. Or what we teach here at Ellerslie, it's the power to do it. So you've been commissioned to do something, and yet you can't do it without grace. Grace is how God saves us. Grace is how God enables us. Grace is how he uses this to show love, to reveal himself to the world through us. It's not our work. It's a work of grace. And so we're going to end up looking at combining these two. And so pneumaticos charisma is an outflow of both of those words. Pneuma, spirit. The adjective pneumaticos is spiritual. God breathed, God imparted, given by the Holy Spirit. 
Charis, grace, the life of God, the power to do. Charisma, grace to accomplish, the generous supply of grace, a gift of grace. So when you combine these two, you get nematicos charisma. It's an extraordinary gift from God, delivered to us by the Holy Spirit, enabling us to actually do what Christians do. So this isn't just a bonus thing. This is how we function. This is what God gives us to enable us so that this isn't just a gathering of everyday humans doing what everyday humans could possibly pull off in their gathering. This is a gathering of believers given the Holy Spirit, actually given pneumaticos charisma to cultivate and to fan into flame in their individual lives and then to share. And when that happens, something can happen in our midst which is very unusual in this world. It's called the body of Christ, where our movements are showing Jesus. They're not just showing humanity. They're showing Jesus in humanity. And that is a revelation that the world craves. They need. They desperately must have. And we are the delivery vehicle of it. But to be the delivery vehicle of it, we need to understand this. We need to understand spiritual kinesiology at least enough to do some basic movements. Where does this charisma come from? James 1.17, every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. I know it sort of goes without saying where this comes from. It doesn't come from your desire. It doesn't come from your good works. It doesn't come from you behaving extremely well one Sunday afternoon, and then God says, okay, now you can have it. It comes when we humble ourselves before the living God and believe upon him and make ourselves an empty vessel that he can fill. And when he does, he actually inhabits these bodies, which he calls his temple, his home, his building, and then he entrusts us with something. Imagine that you were given, you'd have to go back in time for something like this, but imagine that you inherited armor you know, from your, your, your grandfather and he handed it to you, you know, before he died. He's like, I want this to go to my grandson. And you got this you know, royal armor and you got this sword and shield uh, with it, and then it goes straight into the closet. And if someone ever asked you, you know, so did you ever receive that inheritance from your grandfather? You know, is, it's like the royal uh, armor you know, that he fought in such and such a war with. Yes, true. The fact that you have it does not mean you are utilizing it for what it was created for. Many of us actually have something. It has been given to us. And yet we have never taken it out of the closet and used it and said, so you're saying I have a sword. Yes. What does a sword do? Well, I don't know. Let's try it out. (laughs) It has power. It is a gift. It is a gift that is coming straight from God to us, but we must utilize these things to actually have them work on our behalf and on on behalf of others. Ephesians 4.8, he, speaking of Jesus, gave gifts to men. Isn't that just an odd statement that I stick up on the screen there? He gave gifts to men. It's just sort of like a matter of fact. Sure. We have been given gifts. Yes, I already told you about the capital G ones. 
But there are a lot of gifts that God has bestowed upon us, not just for our own benefit. That's what's interesting. It is because he loves us, but it's also because he loves those around us that he gives us things. He has given Eric certain things for what purpose? To make me something special? To actually love you. That was the reason he gave it to me. And I'm going to clarify that as we go through this, that the reason God gave me spiritual gifts is so that I can strengthen you. That's why. And that's a pretty profound thing when you recognize it because many of us crave things so that we can feel whole or that we can no longer be insecure so that we can have our Rubik's Cube solved in our inner man as opposed to recognize that God is blessing us with his life so that we can be a blessing. Romans 1.11. This is an interesting beginning to uh, the book of Romans when Paul is enunciating something that he longs to do when he reaches Rome. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, pneumaticos charisma, so that you may be established. Now this leads to another subtopic of this, which is, uh, it's awkward. And I don't know a better word for it than that. And that is when I say that you have a spiritual gift, I should put a little caveat and an asterisk next to it and then put a reference at the bottom of the page that says, well, I think you do but I'm not sure if you have yet received it. And that comes with statements like this from Paul, where he says he wants to come to Rome to impart something. Uh, so, so wait a minute, God, let me understand this. So you give gifts to men. Paul had something, and he longs to impart it. So Paul needed to give something so that others had something. And by the way, this isn't the only reference of that in the New Testament. And for Eric Ludi, as a result, I have to wonder, okay, I know God has given me something. What is my responsibility? Just encourage everyone else to use what they have? Or am I supposed to, like Paul, say, I want to give you something that I have? And again, that just leads to part of the challenge of walking through these topics. 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift that is in you, says Paul to Timothy, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Okay, guys, you're starting to see what I'm bringing up here. In other words, when I say that you have a gift, I'm not lying, but have you received it yet? And am I a part of that? Is there an impartation that needs to take place? Is there a praying over the saints to say, Lord, may you impart something specific to the body of Christ. 2 Timothy 1.6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. All right, do you understand why Eric is having a tough time escaping this issue? It's just like, I can exhort you to fan into flame the gift of God that is within you, but can I say through the laying on of my hands? Is it my hands? I mean, do, do I, is it Eric that's supposed to lay hands? Is it Philip and Nathan? I mean, what, hey, God, I need to understand these things. That would be really helpful because I don't want you to not have something because I hoard something. I desire the body to be strong. To the degree that I am responsible for something, I want to carry that responsibility out. The key distinction of parts within the church. So I'm going to use the illustration of building a house. Now, that isn't a novel 
idea, Paul is going to use this. All throughout the New Testament, he is going to reference the idea of himself being a master builder even. He was a tent maker. And even Jesus seemed to be some kind of construction guy, right? A carpenter. And so house building seems to be a part and parcel of how this church was built. Isn't it fascinating that God gives Jesus that particular skill out of all the skills that he's a carpenter? And then you have Paul being a tent maker, which I know what we think of. We think of like some you know, fabric tent that is up, which could be what it is, right? But at the same time, he's a house builder. At a, <laughs> he's building dwellings. I mean, that is a remarkable thought that those that are building the church actually understand the construction of housing. So I'll use the same illustration. So in this, here's some things we know. There are those responsible for overseeing the building process of the church. And there are those responsible for being tools and materials in that building process. I didn't come up with this, by the way, guys. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. Not everyone is put in charge and is responsible as an overseer in the church. Otherwise, we'd have a very odd church. However, there are some that are given that task. But a lot of times in modern, especially American Christianity, we have a tendency for those people that I just described, the overseers, to do everything. And they also are the ones responsible for being the tools and materials in that building process. And that seems to be where something has gone awry. Because all of us are called to be tools and materials in this building process of this thing called the house. So not everyone is given the specific charisma to be an overseer to the building process. So and that's a reference in 1 Timothy 3. So we have three different overseeing roles that are very clearly mapped out. Episcopae, or bishops, not a term we typically use today. You'll oftentimes see them described as pastors today, even though that isn't the, a seamless connection. It's a reasonable one. But episcopae, or bishops, the wise inspectors or overseers. Presbyteros, or elders, the seasoned and readied shepherds. And then diakonos, deacons, the servants committed to keeping things in order. And so as a result, we have these governmental positions that seem to be over the building process. They're not the ones that came up with the architectural design, mind you. They're the ones that are responsible to see the Spirit of God and the Word of God implemented in accordance with that Word. They're responsible before God to maintain that process. But everyone is given a specific charisma to be the building. So not everyone is called to oversee the building process, but every single one of us is given charisma to be the building. Isn't that interesting that I'm calling you a building? Well, I'm not the one that started that. 1 Corinthians 3.9, you are God's building. That's sort of an odd phrase. Now, if I said you're God's temple, you would nod along and say, amen, amen, brother. But God's building just sounds different. It's like the wrong language for it. I think it's a better language. I actually relate better to the word building than I do temple. Because temple has just been thrown out so often that you start to lose what it really is talking about. That the place where God's very presence dwells. The place where you bring sacrifice. The place where you worship. This is what we are called to be. The temple of the living God. We are God's building. You see, God is designing something 
He is putting something up in this world known as the church of Jesus Christ. We are that something. We are that building. He fills it with his glory. And then out of all those windows known as our life, you can see that glory. Ephesians 2, 20-22, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Nice summary statement right there. Hebrews 3, 6, Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. You are Christ's house. Isn't that a great statement? You are Christ's house. Like I said, we're used to hearing that we're the temple of the, of the living God, but we are God's building. We are Christ's house. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And I always, when I, when I see a question mark at the end of that, I'm always thinking, I don't know if a, a lot of the church actually knows that. I mean, they know the scripture maybe, but I'm not sure they actually believe it in actuality. Do you actually understand that the Spirit of God, just as he dwelled in the Old Testament temple, when Solomon built it and the Spirit of God came in and the priests fell on their face before the cloud of glory, do you believe and do you understand that in the same way you are the temple and that same Spirit that dwelled in Solomon's temple intends to dwell inside of you? It's supposed to stir a little awe, and, you know, it's supposed to actually do something to you. That's what Paul is saying. Do, do, do you not know? Do you not understand the gravity, the severity? The Jews had a terrible time with this. Could you imagine being the Jew, a good Jew, a good Pharisee, and having your conservative worldview on this, and understanding the Gentiles to be dogs, you can't even touch them, and definitely don't interrelate with these dogs, that suddenly a Gentile is wandering down the street declaring that they are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in them. Imagine being a Jew and attempting to swallow that one. It's like there is no way my perfect, holy, and pure, and righteous God would ever dwell inside of that mongrel dog, Gentile. And yet, welcome to the gospel of grace. God has seen fit to take these bodies that are, yes, I would agree with the Jew, a strange place to make the ha- as the habitation of the most holy, holy, holy God. But for us, let's play our role in understanding why the Jew is a little confused over this and saying, I'm awestruck over the same thing, O Jew, that God would choose to humble himself and dwell inside of me. But this is the basis of the church of Jesus Christ. What I am talking about is what makes the church work. If the Spirit of God is not in you, if he's not in us, we're wasting our time. We're trying to play church instead of be the church. There's only one way for the church to be the church, and that is the Holy Spirit must have his way, and he will make Jesus Christ the head of this body. 2 Corinthians 6:16. You are the temple of the living God. 
1 Timothy 3.15, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Now, what's funny is the moment you hear that, especially in modern times, we think of this building as being the house of God. It's like, oh, yes, the house of God. We're in the house of God. Hey, kids, we don't run around in the house of God because this is the house of God. Now, I'm not going to say we don't want to treat this building with respect. This is a very precious place set apart for God's purposes. However, the house of God isn't just this building. It is us. We are a living building, and there is a way that we are supposed to behave in the house of God. There's a way I am supposed to behave inside of this temple. There's a way that we are supposed to behave inside of this corporate building known as us. It is a human building. It is not just a physical structure, even though I know, I know, we're very prone to think of it as a physical structure. I'm going to read this one again just so you can fully enjoy it. I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. The house of God. So let's sort of lay out the, the plan here. This is the construction site. God wants to build a church. He wants to build the revelation of himself in and through us. This is his choice, not mine. If I was God's counselor back at the beginning days of all this and he had hatched this plan, I would have probably as a wise counselor in my own human thinking said, this is a really bad idea. <laughs> I mean, you could end up with Corinth. And it would be true. I would have been right. Because you can end up with flesh and natural man attempting to usurp. That is the vulnerability that comes with this thing known as grace. It can be taken lightly. It can be taken advantage of. But God seems to understand these risks. And he still presses forward. The chief architect who came up with the plans, his name is the father. The master builder, His name is Jesus. The foreman, the chief helper, the Holy Spirit. The handy, humble helpers is what I'm going to call them. The bishops, the elders, the deacons. So we're building something. And these, this is a very sacred thing. Anyone who's in that position should tremble because the responsibility to work under the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to help govern the church and to oversee the church is a weighty matter. But let's keep going. The primary tools, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, what it says, and this is, boy, this has been an, an awkward scripture for, uh, for generations and generations, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, the pastors. Now I'm gonna go into this in upcoming messages, even though I don't go deep into it now, because this is the Bible, and to try and diminish this is dangerous. To try and say, oh, that doesn't exist. What is wrong, and what I would say has gotten off course, is when the modern church capitalizes those terms. And when we say apostle to, in this context, we're not talking about Paul the apostle, someone who's going to actually give scripture even, and when he writes, we're talking about someone at a different level. I'm going to say lowercase a but it's still a function in the body. So to dismiss it because it's being misused is dangerous. When someone starts calling themselves apostle, it is actually making a statement in a direction that I would say is dangerous. Someone may function in a church-building way, like an apostle is, oftentimes understood today by many of us to be like a missionary or a church planner, someone who is establishing new work. It is a very, very important thing in the body of Christ to dismiss it 
Because some people try and claim that, oh, that means that I'm like the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, is a very, very dangerous thing. But to throw it out is equally dangerous. So these are what I'm going to call primary tools. Now I'm going to bring up not an argument, but I'm going to bring up the question mark that is associated with this that isn't easily answered, and that is, are all of us one of these? And I would say, I can't answer that with sureness. I could say, likely, but that is something that is, is a tough one, biblically, to deal with. The building materials, I'm going to call this the Home Depot shopping list. Now, all of us, we're in Home Depot right now, and we need to build this thing. We all need to, okay, each one of you needs to go and get that thing off the shelf that is important for the construction project. And you're like, how do I, how do I know what that is? Well, that's a good question. Does, does God hand you a sheet of paper, and he says, go to aisle 17, you know, halfway down, and look for this item. It has a skew number of such and such. Or am I supposed to, as a leader, lay my hand on you and say, go to aisle 17, halfway down and pick up this. Is it a combination of both? Where I come up to you, lay my hands on you, go, God, show them the piece of paper and the skew number and give them a clear direction to aisle 17. Oh, no, I don't know what aisle it is. Take them there. Those are things that are somewhat mysterious to me still. Now, it does not mean that I'm not ready to aggressively move in a direction of saying, okay, I think we should begin to ask and expect to receive. And if whatever role I need to play in that, I'm ready, okay? But let's go through. This is what's hanging out on the shelves of Home Depot. Now, what's interesting is this doesn't come from just one list that Paul makes in Scripture. It comes from a whole bunch of different lists. And that's why this topic is extra challenging is because Paul gives a list in one book and then gives a different list in a different one. And then gives an altogether different list in another. However, there's like one or two similarities in each one. It's like, Paul, you're not helping here. And yet, what if we take all the lists and we just stick them on different shelves in Home Depot? And this is what we would get. Some of us are given a supernatural impartation to minister and serve. That's Romans 12, 6 through 8. Some are given a special empowerment to teach. Romans 12, 6 through 8. Some to give. Romans 12, 6 through 8. Some to lead. Romans 12, 6 through 8. And some even have a supernatural capacity to show mercy to others. Romans 12, 6 through 8. Some of us are given words of wisdom to bring to the construction site. 1 Corinthians 12, 6 through 10. Doesn't that sound like a great job to have? Everyone else is working. You're like, all right, uh, here's the daily wisdom for all of you that are sweating today. I don't think that's exactly what it's saying. But that's 1 Corinthians 12, 6 through 10. Some of us are given words of knowledge, 1 Corinthians 12, 6 through 10. Some of us are given a special faith, 1 Corinthians 12, 6 through 10. Some of us are given the grace for healings, 1 Corinthians 12, 6 through 10, and 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 29. Some of us, it's the performance of miracles, 1 Corinthians 12, 6 through 10, and 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 29. Others, it's the ability to prophesy, 1 Corinthians 12, 6 through 10, and Romans 12, 6 through 8. Others are able to discern, 1 Corinthians 12, 6 through 10. Some are given the supernatural grace to speak in different languages. How are you guys doing? Some of you are like, please, God, don't send me to aisle 19 and get that one. <laughs> I'm going to have a whole message in this series on tongues, just to give you some anticipation, okay? It is a very biblical concept, and to denigrate it is just as dangerous as to mislead others that you have it when you don't. In other words, this is a very real thing that the Holy Spirit imparts 
to his people. So, and let me read that again just to make it extra awkward. Some are given the supernatural grace to speak in different languages, 1 Corinthians 12, 6 through 10. And some can interpret different languages, 1 Corinthians 12, 6 through 10. Some are given a unique grace empowerment to help, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 29. And then there are some that are uniquely empowered to administrate within the body, praise God, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 29. So, being a handy, humble helper. Do you remember them? They were the bishops, the elders, and the deacons. Being a handy, humble helper is good for all, but not for all. 1 Timothy 3.1, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. In other words, it's the right thing to esteem these giftings, to esteem these roles in the body. However, we all hold things loosely. To say, God, you know what I'm designed for. But it's the right motivation to desire influence in the body of Christ. It's just that sometimes our self-flesh side can work its way into these things. And there are people that desire leadership in the body of Christ for the wrong reasons. Because they have a controlling personality. Because they really like people to like them and to esteem them. And I would say that's not good for the body of Christ which is why I'm calling them humble, handy helpers. Humility is the foremost chief quality along with love for what is needed in anyone who will lead the church because those are the servants of all. It's very possible that all of us are intended to be tools. So this is our list from Ephesians. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now you notice I said very possible. Because I would probably lean in that direction. If, I, if you forced me to make a decision, I would probably say, yes, we all have a function as a tool in the body of Christ. And the tools as we see, even though they can be very misunderstood today, are what are known as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Ephesians 4, 7 through 11. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So did you see that line? I'm going to read it again. Listen closely to this. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So when I say that you have received grace, I'm speaking of this. I believe in what the Word of God says. It's been given. Now, whether it's been given and it's being stored in the back you know, room here, and it's like, well, God, God says, Eric, it's been given, but you're supposed to bring it out to everyone. I mean, that's part of where I'm like, uh, God, do I have a role in this? If, if there's grace that's supposed to be given and I'm just like hogging it back here in the, in the storage room, well then, I want to get it out. But that's, all I'm saying is what it says in Ephesians. But each, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So now here's one thing I know for certain. And it's abundantly clear that every one of us is given the grace to be a specific building material in the house. I.e., or as an illustration of this, see lengthy list of building materials above. Remember that Home Depot shopping list? Every single one of us is meant to be equipped with something to bring to the building site. Every single one of us without exception. So if you feel like the odd man out, it's like, well, God didn't give me anything. This is what you need to pursue earnestly desire the best gifts. And I would say, earnestly desire that which God desires to give you to make you ready to do what you were called to do in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. 
There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one, for what reason? For the profit of all. In other words, you have been given something, not just for your own sake. You are given something so that you can profit those around you. God gives to each of us uniquely. It's sort of special, don't you think? All of us are wired and built differently. We all have a different fingerprint. We all are unique and individual, and yet we all have the same calling, the same will of God upon us, which is to be conformed into his image and to bring him glory. And yet the way that we bring him glory is going to look different than the person next to us. It'll have similar trappings. For instance, we will have humbled ourselves, we will have believed and repented of an old life and taken on a new one. There are certain things that are going to be similar in all of us. We will be marked by love, because that's the chief marking of any disciple of Christ. Love, not just love, but love for one another. However, how we carry out our task is going to look different than the person next to us, which is why we can't just stare around the body and go, I want to be that guy. It isn't how God works. You are this guy or this gal. That sounds weird if I'm pointing at myself, right? You are who you were called to be, and that is very, very significant for this hour of history. You are not to ever marginalize your own calling by thinking it doesn't match up with someone else you see. You have been designed exactly as God intended for right now in history to enable, to profit the body. Your job, if I could say it, is to humble yourself, is to say, God, I want the calling you have for me, not the one I've designed for myself. I want to fill the role that you have seen fit to give me. And whatever that is, I want to fully walk in it. Romans 12, 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, listen to what it says, let us use them. Uh, that's like a little uncomfortably clear. I, I don't like how clear that scripture is. Let us use them. Because what that forces you to answer on your side is, use what? I don't know what I have. Okay, what should we do about that? And that's part of what I'm bringing up is, if we're earnestly desiring this, we're going to solve this Rubik's Cube together. And some of you after this might be going, okay, Eric, I want you, Philip and Nathan, to lay hands on me. We're like, huh? what do you do? You want me to lay hands on What do you think I have? You have something, and you need to impart it. You've been holding out and sticking it in the storage room, and I need it now. Oh, all right, let's do this thing. Some of you know your gifting. You already have had this impartation. And yet, you need to freshly recognize that you need to fan it into flame. You need to use this in the body of Christ, which might mean another conversation where you're like, Eric, I feel like I'm wired to do this, but this church doesn't really facilitate that. I might gulp again and go, oh, okay, well, how in the world are we supposed to facilitate that one? There's some doozies in that list, right? It'd be easier if we just said, well, that one has passed away. Yeah, this one's still around. The gift of helps and administration, those are still around. Uh, but this other one, you know, that, is, that passed away a long time ago, back about the time Paul was writing 1 Corinthians 13. And that's the easy out. I don't go with the easy out any more than I want you to. I want to face the fact that God is going to equip us the way he knows we need to be equipped. 
And if he gives you a doozy of a gift that Eric doesn't quite know what to do with, we're going to work through that together. Gulp. 1 Corinthians 7, 7. Each one of us, each one has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Do not neglect the gift. 2 Timothy 1.6, therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You've received a gift, now minister it to one another. In other words, this is not for you. This is to profit others. When you hold on to it, you're not using it as you were intended to use it. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 through 27 and 31. So this is, a, this is a passage that goes beyond just the screen here. This will be up for a few different slides. One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, it is, therefore, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the member should have the same care for one another. The members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I think that is a form of Christianity that is somewhat foreign to us. We know the scripture. We've read this before. It's like, how does that look, like, practically? Like, when it, when it talks about our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, those members of the body we think less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. Do we? You see, we have different members in the body that we esteem higher. We live in a celebrity generation of Christianity. Very unfortunate, but it's the way it is. We have followed suit with culture, and we have elevated certain characters higher than they ought to be, and even in our ranks, we treat them as superstars instead of recognizing that they're part of a body. And so this has created an imbalance because there are certain gifts that actually are meant to not be paraded about. In fact, it would violate the very gift itself if it was public. For instance, the gift of giving. If the gift of giving is done as God designed it to, we don't know that the gift of giving is operative. Isn't that an interesting statement? It's a modest part of the body that should be covered up. And we as the body 
know the value of it. And we esteem the value of it. And when those people in the body are functioning in accordance with it, even though we might not know truly what they're doing, we genuinely cherish it. And if you're one of the recipients of that secret giving, you praise God for the way that he functions in his church. So when we are functioning correctly, we don't just praise and create celebrities out of the front and center people. We actually cherish the way that God built his body, every member. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. This is just a continuation of that same passage in 1 Corinthians 12. Earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet... I show you a more excellent way. So boom, transition into 1 Corinthians 13. The chief gift of the Father to us. What is the great gift of the Father? This one who is the Father of lights, in whom is no shadow of turning, who gives good gifts to his children. What is the chief gift that he gave to us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. This is a chief gift, and his name is Jesus. Jesus' chief gift to us, the Holy Spirit. You see, if you're going to receive Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit has convinced you of his merit and of his ability to save you. And so it's rather important when you're transacting with Jesus that you recognize not only did you die with him and not only were you buried with him and not only did you resurrect in his resurrection unto newness of life in Christ Jesus, but now you're seated in heavenly places in Christ. And he says, ask the Father. Ask in my name, believing. And what is the chief thing that we could ask for? Because there's a lot of things we could ask for that are in agreement with scripture, but there is one thing that Jesus has made available to us and that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because Otherwise, we cannot function as believers in a way that succeeds. We must have a helper. We must be enabled. We must have grace to do this thing. Yes, grace saved us at the cross. Jesus Christ is an incredible expression of grace, but we need that grace to move inside of us and to animate these limbs, to make these eyes see what he sees, to make this mind the mind of Christ, to make this tongue speak what only Christ could speak, to make these ears discerning and to hear what Christ wants us to hear, to make these hearts beat with his burdens and to make these hands and feet do what he would do and go where he would go. We are called to be the body of Christ, but apart from the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. We cannot functionally live out Christianity the way we were intended to do it. The Holy Spirit's chief chief gift to us. So the Father gives us Jesus. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives us the love of the Father. He gives us all of that heaven and he sticks it inside of us. All of that nature of God. The chief attribute, love. This is how we function. So if you chop it off at Jesus, and you say, that's all I want, then what you're doing is you're trimming out the way that we are supposed to function. The way that we are supposed to give the life of Jesus to this world. It doesn't come through your good deeds or your attempts through gritted teeth to accomplish the representation of Jesus Christ. It comes through you humbling yourself and saying, God, apart from you, I couldn't do this. Please, don't just teach me how to love. I want you to love through me. 
don't just teach me how to be joyful. I want your joy inside of me. Christianity is a transformation where our old life no longer is in control, but God's life controls us. Old man, or I could say old management, is forsaken for new man or new management. We are under new management. Why are we the recipients of all this amazing charisma? Ephesians 4, 12 through 16, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, that's you and me, every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Simply put, that we may all gain Christ, Philippians 3.8, be found in him, Philippians 3.9, know him, Philippians 3.10, and know the power of his resurrection, Philippians 3.10, as well as the fellowship of his sufferings, Philippians 3.10, be conformed to his death, Philippians 3.10, and attain the resurrection from the dead, Philippians 3.11. So what should all of us do? Oh, well, wouldn't it be a lot easier if I just gave a message like this and kept it theoretical? Makes everything a lot easier. But that's a stinky form of Christianity when you do that. What should all of us do? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 31, earnestly desire the best gifts. So for us, practically, that's hard. All I can do is light a flame today uh, and just say, if there is a hunger and a desire inside of you, Leslie and I spent a whole season of our life praying and asking God, God, how have you equipped us? What have you given to us that we need to fan into flame? And it's strange, well, that's strange, but it was sort of strange to me at the time to begin to realize how seriously God takes this. And I feel like he did give me an answer to that. There is one thing that I know that I have, and it is hard to describe to someone who may not have it, but I have the gift of faith. I have a special charisma for faith. And there are times when I know that I know that I know that God is doing something. And everyone around me can be like panicking and saying, how how do you know that? I don't know. But I know, and I'm at total rest right now. God will do this. It took me a while to recognize what that was, but it was a gift to the body. That there is a reason why God has me in this role, and that is because I believe. I believe the word. I believe he is going to do this. I believe he will do it in this generation, whatever that would be. And that sponsors a faith in you. And it's part of how God has gifted me for the profit of others so that you could be strengthened. I know that. But the question is, do you know what God has given you? I do not believe that God just has us get one thing off the shelves in Home Depot. My guess is he creates medleys. However, there's oftentimes probably a priority gifting 
And then there's some supporting factors. All of us could at any point in time do any of those things that were stated. And if you asked me about any of those, it could be a little awkward of a conversation, but I've probably done every single thing in that list. Now, some of you are like, what? There were some weird things in that list. I know, I know. Which is why I'm hesitant to just start talking about it. However, my entire life, I don't use terminology like Paul does. I usually cloak things. If I have a sense that I should come up and pray for you and say something to you, I do not call it a word of knowledge. And there's a reason for that, because it might cause you not to listen. I would rather have you be exhorted and encouraged by me coming up to you and saying, I was just you know, wanting to pray this for you, or say these words to you. When I'm in a counseling situation, I'm praying the whole time. And God will give me insight into people's circumstances to say very specific things. And you could say, what is that? That's weird. No, that's Christianity. When I come up to someone to talk to them about Christ on the streets, if I do not have the Holy Spirit giving me his words, I'm going to miss it. Because every soul is at a unique place. And it's my job to be sensitive to the Spirit of God to bring the gospel to them where they need it. Which means I have to study and I have to know the truth before I get into that situation. And God will draw and he will utilize this tool known as Eric when he needs me. But that is because I understand charisma. I understand that God gives grace for each task. But then in the body, I want to play my role that is my chief gifting out of my, I could say my medley, so that I can give strength to you. And the same as what I desire to be fanned in you is a yearning and a desire to understand this in your life. Earnestly desire the gift of Jesus. Earnestly desire the gift of the Holy Spirit. Earnestly desire the gift of love in the Holy Spirit. Earnestly desire the specific equipment and power the Holy Spirit imparts that you might love the body well and see it built up and matured for its purpose. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.